0: Please remain standing for the reading of the New Testament. Mark chapter 15, reading verses 1 through 5. God's holy word from the New Testament, Mark's gospel, chapter 15, just the first five verses. God's word. As soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. As far as the reading of God's word may he bless it to us, let us pray. So there is a fundamental law of communication. It's the first rule before all others, and it is when you have nothing to say, say nothing. Now, for many of us, this may sound new, except for Mom saying, "If you have nothing nice to say, don't say anything." A lot of us have never heard this rule. And this is because our time has basically canceled this rule. For we live in a chatterbox day when everyone has a voice to be used constantly. People seem today to talk without a filter as a stream of consciousness. And this running of the mouth berates us with meaningless rambling, par-cooked opinions, endless strings of superlatives, and downright dishonesty. Everyone has something to say about everything, and no pre-thinking or listening is required. The mouth keeps moving, even though the brain is not engaged. You'll note that politicians never say, I do not know. Farmers will speak on issues of dentistry. English professors pontificate on the environment. No one stays within their field of training and therefore, it's a, really, a, it's a real treat nowadays when an expert addresses what they know and no more. A thoughtful and crafted talk, staying within the proper bounds, is a breath of fresh air. Well, our Lord is definitely one who has something to say. As the incarnate word, his words are always worth listening to. And yet, just when we expect him to say something profound, to our surprise, he follows the rule to say nothing. So after Mark's split-screen technique at the end of the last chapter, he brings us back to a single camera. And we see one more thing that that majestic rooster crow marked. You'll remember that the prophetic rooster testified to the blind, that the blindfolded Jesus was the messianic prophet who foretold of Peter's thrice denial. The squawking chicken also was the active working of the spirit upon the conscience of Peter to humble him to tears. Well now the rooster declares that it's morning. Yes, this rooster is a multitasker. He spoke the special revelation of Christ, and he fulfilled the common duties as the sunrise herald with the same cockle doo doo Yet with the first light of dawn, the priestly authorities have to get a move on. Having secured their conviction and death sentence against Jesus, they need to get in line, for it was the common practice across the empire for the Roman courts to open at sunrise. Nice and early before it got hot, the Roman governor would sit on his tribunal and people would bring their cases before him. Thus, like Black Friday shoppers, the priests have to be first in line. With all haste, then, they lead Jesus and hand him over to Pilate. Now, this is a former judicial transfer of a criminal from one court to another. For within judicial systems, Jurisdiction is prime. As the local judiciary of Jerusalem and the temple, the Sanhedrin didn't possess authority for capital punishment. Rome zealously kept that for itself. So the priests need Rome to sign off on their conviction and to perform the death sentence. But in this transfer, Mark adds some weighty imagery. First, they bound Jesus. Now, it isn't specified whether this is with chains or ropes, but they hogtie the hands and feet of the Son of Man. You can practically hear the rattling of the chains as the priests chant, dead man walking. Next, the word for delivered over echoes backwards to the passion predictions of Jesus given earlier in the gospel. In chapter 9, Jesus forecasted that the Son of Man would be delivered over into the hands of sinners. In chapter 10, he prophesied that the priest would hand him over to the Gentiles. Our Lord's word is again coming true. But there's something grossly out of joint here. For who is Jesus? He's the majestic Son of Man. The voice on the Mount of Transfiguration named him, This is my beloved son. Demons cowered before him. He forgave sins as only God can. Jesus strove on the waves of the sea as God in his majesty. In the person of Jesus is God himself equal in power and glory with the Father. And yet here is the Son of God muzzled in chains, before the tribunal of Rome. And what is Rome? Well, it's the common grace state sustained by providence as God's servants. At its best, the earthly courtroom is sinful humans performing relative justice with their limited wisdom for the penultimate good. At its worst, they are corrupt rebels furthering injustice to abuse the innocent and to shake their fist at heaven. Either way, God never suffers himself to be put on trial before mortals. The potter cannot be judged by the clay. The perfect cannot be tried by the imperfect, nor the infinite by the finite, the holy one by the profane. The earthly has zero jurisdiction over heaven, But here is the creator, the holy son of God, chain-bound before the judgment seat of mortals. The righteous Christ puts himself under such pseudo-justice. How can this be? Well, remember that earthly courts are linked to heaven. Ordained by God, human courts are supposed to carry out the heavenly will on the earth the law. And there are two courts present here. First, there are the priests who make up the Mosaic court, the church court to administer God's covenantal law. Presently, the priests match perverse injustice at its worst. Second, there is Rome, which is the common grace court that administers natural law. And as we'll see, Rome here aligns more closely with to the judicial system at its best. Nevertheless, when the earthly courts are in session, the heavenly tribunal is watching. Heaven oversees the earthly judge to give its amen or to issue a reversal. Thus, Jesus had to stand before a mortal court in order to win a higher verdict in heaven, namely our acquittal. We stood condemned in heaven, so to efface this, Jesus had to be judged by a terrestrial judge. Our perfect Lord submitted to the lower courts to be condemned so that we might be justified in glory. We could not be pardoned by God unless Jesus was condemned by man. And so the Son of God is judged by sinners, so that we sinners might be declared just by God in Christ. Because Christ was found guilty on earth, we receive forgiveness and justification on high. This gross mismatch match between the Son of God robed in change before sinners, this is being done for your redemption. The features of our Lord's humiliation drill ever deeper down into our gracious salvation. And yet with Jesus in the presence of Pilate, the court is in session. And first up in proper protocol is to establish the charge, which Pilate actually does, unlike the priest before him. Now, it's clear that the priests are piling charges up against Jesus. In fact, so many of them are outlandish and silly that Pilate has to do some editing. He distills down their nonsense into a single charge with credibility. Are you the king of the Jews? Are you the king of the Judeans? Now, this question is an obvious, an obvious parallel to that of the high priest, He asked, are you the Christ? Pilate states, are you the king of the Jews? These are the same charge, though the language shift makes all the difference. For the priests, the Christ was primarily a religious accusation. Thus, they regarded him as a blasphemer, a sin against God himself. Rome, though, had no interest in the petty theological debates of the Jews. Thus, the priests recast the charge into a political one. A man claiming to be God? This is like, so what, to Rome? But to claim to be king? This registered as, as seditious and treasonous against Caesar. Shrewdly, they paint Jesus as a rebel king to challenge Caesar's domain in Judea. He's a practiced enemy of the state in competition with the Imperium of Rome. And as a political threat, he should not be tolerated, but removed by the state's sword. If Jesus endangers the common grace of Rome, then he must be denied the common grace for life. Wicked and incompetent have been the priests, but this move is clever. One, The other thing about this charge, though, is how it's still recycled today. The evil one yet likes to paint the church with the charge, this charge to garner the state's violence. Sure, often Satan is happy merely to compromise the church to make it look like the world. But when that does not work, the doctrines or morals of scripture are categorized as hateful, harmful to social order, and thus should not be tolerated or allowed. Now, in one sense, it is true that Jesus and us in him do announce the end of the state, as the Lord will destroy this age and bring forth new creation at his second coming. Yet Christ also affirms the state as the providential servant of God for common good. Hence, we love our neighbors, we live at peace with all, and we pray for those who are in power. The evil one, though, loves to confuse this for the world. He colors the church as more and more political to put it in competition with the state, and once it's a competitor, then the state can eliminate it. Yes, the methods of the evil one have not changed much. Nevertheless, with this charge put to our Lord, he has the opportunity to respond. It is, after all, Pilate's duty to gather facts to determine the charge, and so the best place to start is to ask the accused if it's true. And Jesus bats back with the most interesting response. You have said so. This is one of those lines where you know all the words, but you're still not sure of the meaning. Indeed, this remark is all about tone, how it is said, which we cannot quite hear. Indeed, there are several ways to take it. For one, it could be an affirmation. Yes, as you say. Or two, it could be a denial. You say it, not I. Maybe Jesus is just being evasive and noncommittal, deliberately ambiguous. You said it. His response could also have a corrective force. I am a king. Not as you define it, Pilate. Finally, our Lord's words could even be read as a question. Are you saying so? Are you being serious? But which one is it? Well, we're not sure, which is likely the point. Jesus gives an ambiguous answer in order to not impede the trial. Without an an explicit denial or affirmation, Jesus can hold on to an aspect of truth. He is a king as he defines it. And he can reject any falseness. He's not a king as the priest or pilot may understand it. This then allows the trial to continue without delay as each one can put their own meaning to what he said. Our Lord again shows his willingness here To go to the cross. He will not derail the proceedings against him. In fact, he greases the wheels. Though the priests are taking no chances. If one charge is good, more is better. Thus they start lobbing more accusations like it's hand grenade practice. Now Mark doesn't record them for us, but he hints at a list longer than a spoiled kid's Christmas list. These multitude of additional accusations, though, betray further corruption. As you'll remember, the Sanhedrin voted only on one charge against Jesus. To add more at this point means they're unsubstantiated. These are false charges yanked out of a hat at the last minute because the priests are desperate. The priests are both disorderly and indecent. And yet where they are in disarray, Pilate keeps his court in order. He turns back to our Lord and he encourages him to make a defense. See all these charges? Aren't you going to respond to them? And this is actually part of proper Roman jurisprudence. The legal custom of Rome was to ensure that the accused met his accusers face to face in order to present a self-defense. Pilate here is ensuring the rights of Jesus for a defense. This is a moral procedure for a judge. He's doing the lawful thing for our Lord. The right of self-defense was a prized privilege granted in Roman law. No one waived this liberty. And thus, Pilate will not let the commotion of the priest drown out our Lord's opportunity to respond. This is the state working well, and yet Jesus says nothing. He does the unthinkable. He waives his right to self-defense. He utters not a peep, no rebuttal, no counterpoint, no closing argument. And like Pilate, this makes us marvel. Note Pilate is amazed at the silence of Christ as if he's watching a miracle. How is silence possible? Truly extraordinary. But why is Jesus' silence such a marvel? Well, for one, as a true man, Jesus felt the natural human instinct of self-defense. Rebutting false charges against you is like blinking or putting your arm up when something's thrown at your face. It's instinctual. Second, Jesus could have easily talked his way out of this sham trial. The wisdom of our Lord's eloquence could have talked him out of any pickle. We've seen this several times. The Pharisees would try to snare him with his words, and he would say just the right thing to slip through their trap. With effortless dialogue, our Lord could walk away from this trial unharmed or tie up his case in the courts for weeks. But he does not. This is impressive. Third, his silence is astounding because he is a prophet. As a prophet of the covenant, it is his responsibility to testify to the truth. Especially in a trial in the world's court, when the Mosaic priests are the accusers, Prophets are heaven's prosecutors to speak against uh, corruption and wickedness. As a prophet, as the prophet, doesn't Jesus have the, the duty to testify to the truth? Isn't his silence a dereliction of his prophetic office? Well, it would seem so, except for the fact that our Lord is not merely a prophet. He doesn't hold only one office, but three of them. Therefore, his muteness as a witness shows how his prophetic office is serving his priestly one. Jesus could talk his way out, but if he did, then the cross would be stalled, which was his destiny as the priest. God ordained Christ to die as a sacrifice on Passover for our true Exodus redemption. And in this part of his work, the priestly office takes the solo. Thus, our Lord's prophetic voice is voiceless to allow for priestly intercession. For how do priests minister? What is the prime tool of a priest? Well, prophets minister by word, the mouth is their chief instrument. Priests, though, are not talkers. Rather, they minister mainly by blood. Priests largely served in silence. They entered the holy place not to talk, but to offer up incense and blood. Our Lord's silence is him putting on his priestly hat. It is him preparing to offer up his blood. This also fits with the link to Isaiah 53, like a lamb is silent before shears. Sacrificial animals were expected to be silent before their throats were slit as a sign of their willingness and submission. Jesus' silence then is him being our priestly advocate and intercessor. Him going to the cross to minister for us, not with words, but with his life, his blood. Everything in the world is pushing Jesus to talk. But as a work of wonder, he stays quiet as a priest in the sanctum, as mute as a lamb before the altar. His silence reveals his innocence, his righteousness, Amid this foul trial, which in turn showcases that Jesus is not dying for his own guilt, as he had none, but he's perishing for our sin and shame. Once again, then, everything our Lord does here is for you. It's for your salvation. This is his works of obedience, since we have none. It's his love for you. It is him paying the penalty that we deserve. Our Lord's silence at this most intense moment is him earning the right to speak a better word later on. As our priest, Jesus had to say nothing, and so he said nothing. But where a priest is quiet before the altar and inside the holy place, after sprinkling the blood, the priest goes out to the people to pronounce the benediction. Once his bloody work is finished, Jesus will, na- will announce in his resurrection God's peace and grace upon you. Yes, every time you hear the benediction, you are reminded that Jesus' quiet work as your priest and sacrifice was perfect and sufficient. Once and for all, his death made full atonement for all your sins. He was judged so that you were not. He died so that you might live forever in him. He was silent before the cross so that Christ at the right hand can make constant intercession for you. And in the peace of God's shining face, we then are made able to love him, to worship him, and to go forth and to please him in all that we do. Indeed, Jesus was silent before the cross in order to give us something to say so that we might speak and announce to the world that the Lamb is King, so that we might share his gospel widely. Thus may we never fail to share the gospel when Christ gives us the opportunity to speak. Indeed, praise the Lord that Jesus did not defend himself so that he is our everlasting defender and Lord. Amen. Let's pray.